Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever wondered if that person could be included in the family of God? How could God ever forgive them? Have you considered that that person is all of us? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled The Unexpected and Uncomfortable Forgiveness of God, which covers Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So we're continuing in this series uh, in the book of Acts. Caleb mentioned this last week. We, we actually started our study in the book of Acts last year, last February. We went, I don't remember, maybe seven or eight, maybe nine weeks, don't remember exactly, and then we tabled it and said, we'll pick back up again next year at some point. And so that time is now. We made it through the first eight chapters last year. We picked up last week in Acts chapter nine with the conversion of Saul. And we'll continue as long, uh, we, we have this planned out. We know where we're trying to get in our teaching of, of, uh, of Acts, and we hope to get there, but we're also gonna trust the Spirit's leading in that. Uh, we might settle in a little bit more and not cover as much as, that we, as we've planned just based on what God's doing and how he's leading. And so we'll do part three at some point next year, and then there is, there's even a part four. You're like, a four-year series? Are you kidding me? Yeah, four-year series. Maybe five, I don't know, we'll see. We're going to trust God leading us in the book of Acts. You know, I think about Acts, and there is, there is so much beauty in the book of Acts. And it, and it kind of reminds me of where we just were. So Rachel and the kids and I were able to go over spring break on the, the, the great, the, the great all-American family trip. Um, I felt a little bit like Clark Griswold. Uh, on, on family vacation, but without all the chaos, thankfully, praise God. But instead of driving a old, beat up, falling apart station wagon, I was driving an RV and I loved it. I think I was made to drive RVs and preach. Um, it was awesome. We, we flew into Phoenix, we picked up the RV, we, we drove to the Grand Canyon, Stayed there a couple days, then went to Lake Powell, stayed there a couple days, then went to Zion National Park, stayed there a couple days, and then finished our trip in Bryce, Bryce Canyon, northern Arizona, southern Utah. And, and it was unbelievable in terms of what I saw. And, and I remember, this was kind of the progression in my mind. We're, we're at the Grand Canyon, and, and I'm standing on the precipice of glory just trying to take it all in, and I'm just thinking, wow, we started uh, with the best place first. It's going to be all downhill from here. I mean, this is just surreal. It is so vast, and it is so magnificent that it doesn't even really feel real. There was, there's a part of me that I'm just kind of even wanting to, like, is that, am I looking at a painting? What's going on here? It's unbelievably breathtaking. And, I, and I'm thinking, this is beauty like I've never seen. And then we drive up to Lake Powell, and in a totally different way, totally different type of landscape, I, I'm then feeling, oh my goodness, as we drive around and, th and through, not a car, boat, uh, the lake, 
that would be problematic. We, we are watching all that's around us in these sandstone cliffs and these little uh, waterways that go through these, these little slot canyons as we drive our boat. And it's just unbelievably beautiful. And I think, okay, well, maybe this is the best. Surely it doesn't get better than this. And then we drive up the road a little ways to Zion and we're standing at observation point overlooking the Zion National Park. And I'm going, okay, this is the best. This is, I've never seen beauty like this. I thought that was the best. I thought that was the best. This is unbelievable. And then we end our trip at Bryce Canyon in a totally, another type of landscape in a totally different way. I'm taking it in going, okay, no, no, this is my favorite. This is, this is the, my favorite of the whole trip. But if I went back to the Grand Canyon, I'd probably go, no, 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 this is, this is it, this is it. It was, it was exquisite beauty everywhere we went. And it reminds me of the book of Acts when I'm reading through Acts. And there's these different parts along the way where it's like standing on the precipice of glory going, this is unbelievable. Like Acts chapter two, right? The spirit is being poured out at the day of Pentecost and you're reading through Acts chapter two and what Peter preaches and the response of the nations who are there and the, and the spirit being poured out on them and you're just going, there is something exquisitely beautiful happening right here. It can't get better. And then you find yourself in Acts chapter four and you see John and Peter before the council and, and they're, getting, uh, they're getting their lives threatened and they say, look, I, you can do whatever you want to to us, but we're not gonna stop preaching the gospel, sorry. And you get to the end of chapter four and there's this beautiful expression of the unity of the church. And you go, this is amazing. And then you keep reading. And you get to Acts chapter seven and you see this first martyr of the church. And it's not just that Stephen gets stoned, it's what he says before he gets killed. And he says, uh, he, he gives this presentation of the gospel that is riveting. And you go, this is unbelievable. And then you get to Acts chapter eight and you realize that Acts 1, 8, chapter one, verse eight is being lived out through the early church when Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Oh, that's Pentecost, Acts chapter two. And into Samaria, here we are, Acts chapter eight. Philip is spreading the gospel to the Samaritans and they're believing, it's happening. And you go, this is awesome. And then you get to Acts chapter nine, last week, and you see the conversion, the, the most unlikely conversion of the murderous Saul. And you go, what? What is, what is happening? There's no way that this could get better. And it's as if God says, just keep reading. And so we get to Acts chapter 10, where we're going to be this morning. And you go, okay. This is continuing to be mind-blowing. We get to another conversion story. And it's the, the story not of a murderous Jew who's wanting to stop the church, but actually what is described as a God-fearing Gentile who's curious about the church. But it's just as glorious and all of the exquisite ways in which God is unfolding his kingdom story, we're amazed. Now, to lead us into where this story is taking us, so I'll give you this. Um, I, one of my biggest pet peeves, I hate being unexpectedly scared. 
when someone tries to, you turn a corner and somebody just jumps out. Ah! And they laugh, gotcha, and I'm like, I want to hit you. That's not funny. And, and, and maybe there are some people out there. I, there's always, I'm always surprised. Maybe there are some people that would say, Jeff, that's my favorite thing. I love to turn a corner and somebody scare me out of my shoes. And I would say, you're weird, but okay. But for most of us, we don't like that. I hate it. And I know some of you, and you're going to do it now that you know I hate it. I see some of your faces smiling right now. No, but I do. I can't stand it because here's why. Now, not to make something silly, all theological, but, but this is the truth. We as a people, we do not like the unexpected and the uncomfortable. We want to know what's coming. We want to be able to plan for it. And in so doing, what are we chasing after? Comfort. Because if I don't know what's coming, if something catches me off guard, then I feel discomfort. And I don't like that. Now, of course, the turning a corner and being scared is is a silly illustration, but it's a metaphor for deeper, more meaningful things in life. And all throughout life, we have things that catch us off guard, painful things, hard things, unexpected things that throw us into the abyss, if you will, of discomfort, and we do not like it. But here's what we see. One of the major threads throughout the scriptures that God pull, pulls for us is he pulls this thread of telling us and showing us time and time again that it's in the unexpected and in the uncomfortable that we most readily and powerfully see his redemptive work. It's in the unexpected and the uncomfortable that we most readily and powerfully see his character. It's when we see most clearly who he is and what he's doing in his work of redemption in us and around us. We don't like it, but it ends up being glorious. That's the story of Acts chapter 10. There's something that's going to happen here in this text that's unexpected and very uncomfortable for Peter. Peter's the main character in this. And here's the story. I'm going to recap part of it, and then we're going to pick it up at the, at the end of chapter 10. Here's what happens. This man named Cornelius, living in Caesarea. Now, I've had the joy of going to ancient Caesarea and standing in the ruins. It was a city that was built by uh, King Herod, uh, who was a maniacal uh, narcissist of the time, not a good king of the Jews. However, he wanted to honor Caesar, and so he built a city all in the Mediterranean Sea, beautiful setting for Caesar to honor him. So that's Caesarea. So there's this Roman centurion named Cornelius. Centurion is, we get the root word for that word is the same root word that we get our word century. It means 100. So He's a Roman soldier who is in charge of a hundred other soldiers. But it says in the text, right there at the beginning of chapter 10, it says that he's a God-fearing man. What does that mean? Well, it means this, and if you'll read on your own, I I won't read it for you, but I encourage you to read chapter 10 and chapter 11 uh, to get the full context of this. 
But here's what it meant that he was a God-fearing man. It meant that he would have attended the Sabbath worship services. Uh, he, kept, he would have kept the Sabbath as a day of rest. He would have kept the dietary Jewish laws. He would have generously been one who gave to the poor. And he would have prayed daily at the set times that the Jews prayed. But he would not have been circumcised. He would not have been baptized and he would have been one who would be barred from offering sacrifices in the temple because he's a Gentile. And this was actually not all that uncommon of that day. There were many Gentiles of the day uh, that worshiped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but were not admitted into the Jewish community. Why? Well, because they're Gentiles. And Jews hated Gentiles. One of the main themes of the cultural context of the Bible. Jews hated Gentiles. Hate might actually not be a strong enough word to fully get at how they felt about Gentiles. And so here's what happens. You have this Roman centurion who's described as a God-fearing man. Now, that doesn't mean that he was saved, okay? Because as you'll see as the story unfolds, Peter's going to come and preach the gospel. That's what needed to happen. So what does it mean that he was God-fearing? It meant all those things, but it also meant that he was worshiping the God of Israel with great curiosity. He was leaning in, if you will, in in such a way uh, that God heard and saw and responded as God is quickening his heart to the gospel. But there's this Gentile man, influential, apparently wealthy, because the text tells us that he has servants. And he's praying one day. And as he's praying, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And the angel tells him, hey, your prayers have been heard by God. Here's what you need to do. You need to go and call for one man named Simon called Peter, who is currently in Joppa. Joppa was 33 miles south of Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, just down the coast. And bring him back. He's staying in a house of another Simon, a tanner. Simon was a common name. And so as this vision goes away, as the angel leaves, he immediately gets two of his servants and one of his soldiers, and he equips them and sends them On the the short journey, 33 miles, uh, not too long, about a day and a half journey by foot, he sends them on the journey down to find this Simon called Peter. Now, as those men are coming into Joppa, Peter begins to pray. Before he begins to pray, he's hungry, for he'd not eaten all day, and he asks those that that he's staying with in Simon the Tanner's house if they could prepare some food. So as they're preparing food, he does his daily prayers. And as he begins to pray, he falls into a deep sleep. And he has a vision. Peter has a vision. And this vision is a little bizarre. It's a vision that he has where there's a massive sheet, what's called in the scriptures a sheet. What does that even really look like? We don't know but that it's coming down and in the four corners of the sheet are coming down and covering the whole earth. And within this sheet are all kinds of animals. And there's a voice that speaks to Peter in this vision and says this, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter is perplexed. Peter responds actually by saying this, by no means, Lord, 
He knows this is the Lord speaking to him. For I, have com- for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. And this is what God said. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, it's important to distinguish between what Peter is doing versus what the Old Testament actually, the scriptures actually said. So remember the Pharisees, if you've been in and around church, this may be new to you, but the Pharisees were really good at taking the law of God and making it into traditions that actually aren't the law of God. They're more tradition-based than they are scripture-based. And that's part of what's happened with the Jewish community by this point in their culture. They've taken a lot of things that aren't actually in the Bible and made them laws that are based on tradition, not the word of God. So that's part of what's happening here, and Peter's a little confused on that. And so God's reminding him, look, it's clean if I say it's clean. So don't call uh, unclean what I call clean. Don't call common what I call clean. Now, the vision ends. Now, listen, he has this vision three times. God works with Peter in threes. Peter's pretty stubborn, just like me. He denied him three times. Then he restores him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then now he gives this vision three times. And the vision ends, and the scripture tells us here in chapter 10 that that Peter is just baffled. And it says that he's wrestling with trying to figure out what does that mean? What, What is God doing? And as he's wrestling, in that very moment, he gets a knock at the door. And they ask for, they say, is Simon called Peter here? So Simon comes down, he meets him at the door, and they say to him, there's a man, a centurion, in uh, Caesarea who has called for you, and the Lord has told him to bring you. Now this is where we begin to get indication that Peter is a changed man. Peter is different than the Peter we saw throughout the Gospels. The Peter throughout the Gospels had not received the Holy Spirit yet. And so what we see throughout the Gospels is that when Peter is faced with things that he doesn't understand, he shoots off at the mouth, he does what he wants to do, and he screws things up. But now Peter has a spirit, and he's not perfect by any means, and he's still going to make mistakes, as we'll see. But he's following the leading of the spirit. He invites these men in, and together they explain to them, to Peter, what Cornelius has said. And then he goes with them, and he travels with them, along with six other men, up to Caesarea. Now, he gets to Caesarea, and they lead him into this home, and Peter, we learn this in chapter 11, Peter is really struggling with, should I even go into this home? Because again, as a good Jew, you are not to step foot, not even pass over the threshold of the door of a house of a Gentile, because they are sinners. And if I step into their house, then I therefore become unclean. And so Peter's really even struggling with what is all that? I mean, imagine, try to put yourself in the, in, in the shoes and in the mind of Peter as a good Jew. But he does. He follows the Spirit's lead. And what does he walk into? He walks into a house full of people. And this is what they say. This is, this is uh, I don't think you'll see this on the screen quite yet. So he says, so this is Cornelius telling Peter. He says, so I sent for you at once. 
and you have been kind enough to come. Now, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say. He's invited all of his family and all of his closest friends, and he says, all right, we're here. What you got for us? Oh, man, if evangelism were only always that easy. And Peter's just sitting there. I would imagine that Peter's just looking and going, I'm not real sure what's going on here, but okay. So, verse 34. Let's read. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, I want to be clear about something. Peter is not propagating here a performance-based, works-based salvation. He's not saying, now I realize that if anybody just fears the Lord and is good, then in every nation, they'll, you know, God accepts them. What he's saying is, what does it mean to fear God? Another sermon for another day that I plan on preaching sometime soon. I'm reading a book right now on fearing God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, at the essence, fearing God is to trust him, to believe by faith in Christ, in the promise of Christ in the old covenant, in the, in the Christ who has come in the new covenant, to believe upon him, to fear him in such a way that we receive him by faith and we're transformed. Our hearts are transformed. We're made like him so that what flows out of us, not perfectly by any means, but what begins to flow out of us are good things, things that bring him glory is our heart becomes more like his. And so he's saying, I understand now, God shows no partiality. This is not just for the Jews. It's starting to click for Peter. It's like he steps into the house, he starts proclaiming the gospel, and it's like, oh, the animals and the sheep were not about what I'm eating necessarily, although that's important. Uh, it's about that God's saying that the Gentiles are not unclean. The gospel is for them also, and it's just starting to click for him, and he's going, oh, I realize now God is not just for the Jews, he's for everybody. And Peter, verses 36 through 41, proclaims the gospel. He walks through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then in verse 42, he says this, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. And watch verse 43. All this while, I want you to get this visual. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or anywhere like that, we've been slowly inching our way up through chapter 10 to the edge, to the precipice of glory. We're seeing what God's up to and we're going, this is amazing. And I don't know how to take this all in, but oh my goodness, is God really doing this? Is this really as vast and magnificent as what's before me? And the answer is yes. And so verse 43, we're on the edge. We're as far as we can get and we're about to fully take in the grandeur of the glory of the redemptive work of God for all nations because look what he says. This is Peter getting it. It's clicking. Oh my goodness, is God really doing it? Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness. All the prophets, everything has been pointing to Jesus the whole time. And let, let this sink in, that everyone, if you like to underline words in your Bible, underline everyone, that everyone, everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There is no partiality. 
Now, of course, of course, the, uh, uh, the cultural, first and foremost cultural application of that day and time of what this meant was certainly racial and ethnic, for sure, because that's what this whole thing had been about. Jews are saying we are the pure line of God's chosen people. Samaritans, the reason we hate you is because you're half-breeds. You've mingled, co-mingled to an extent, and procreated with Gentiles and Jews, and you've made, we hate you. Gentiles, you're the worst of the worst. You're so far from what we would consider pure, we cannot even walk in your homes or use the same utensils that you eat with or drink water after you. We cannot be around you, and it was entirely, entirely, based on their race and their ethnicity. And God's saying, there is no partiality. The gospel destroys all that. The kingdom of God that Jesus has ushered in destroys man-made discrimination. And that's part of what God is doing. And Peter's going, oh my goodness. But let me tell you something else that's happening here. God is testing the limits of how we define forgiveness. He's pushing hard on Peter's heart to say, this centurion, do you really believe that he can be forgiven as an unclean sinner according to your tradition? Years ago, many years ago, I I came across this interview that wrecked me. And in the theme that I started with of something being unexpected and uncomfortable, it was so unexpected and uncomfortable because it was with Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, I won't go into detail because it's just so grotesque, but he was one of the worst, most horrible serial killers in American history. It involved cannibalism. We'll leave it at that. Horrible. They finally catch him, they finally arrest him, and he's in jail. And about six months before he's killed in jail, they do an interview, about an hour-long interview with him. I watched the whole thing, and the whole time I was just fascinated. Everything from disgusted to fascinated, and you'll see why. God did a work in my heart through this interview. Here's why. Jeffrey Dahmer begins early in the interview to express so much contrition, apologizing and asking for forgiveness from the families of the victims. And you're going, what, What? are you crazy? But you're sensing something is going on here. And as it gets further into the interview, he begins to explain that the reason he did what he did, he was asked at one point by the interviewer, why? Why in the world would you do what you did? And he said, He said, because I didn't have, and I'm summarizing, but he said, I didn't have a Christian worldview. He said, I didn't think life mattered. What's the point? You're born out of nothing. You go into nothing. You're just matter while you're here. So what does it matter if I take life? I can do whatever I want to with life because if I'm stronger and bigger and in control, then that means that I get to do what I want to do. When he first got to prison, somebody shared the gospel with him, and he believed upon Christ. And then he started getting discipled. And in this interview, he starts very uh, uh, beautifully articulating the gospel. And he says, when I gave my life to Jesus, I became a totally different person. I began to understand the meaning of life as people made in the image of God. 
And he said, I know that my fa- the families of the victims will never forgive me for what I've done, but I would ask for forgiveness because I know that God has forgiven me. Jeffrey Dahmer. And I watched this interview and I was like, no, no way. Absolutely not. There is no way this guy gets to say God has forgiven me. Why would I feel that way when I watch that? Here's why. Because I'm using my limits, my definition of how far forgiveness extends and putting it on God who has no limits. Peter wrestled with this. This same Peter wrestled with this. Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, um, how many times is it appropriate to forgive someone? I'm thinking seven. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot. And Jesus' answer was, no, Peter, it's more like 70 times seven. And that was not so that Peter would go, okay, 490, got it, I'm keeping tabs. No, it was, it was Jesus' way of saying, there is no limit. There is no limit to my forgiveness. And Peter's probably in that moment going, huh? And now he's sitting with the centurion and it's clicking. He's going, I get it now. I see it. The Spirit's bringing it to life in me. I see now that everyone, everyone, we just saw it with Paul, the murderer. Now we're seeing it with the centurion, the unclean dude that I wouldn't even walk into his house. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is forgiven. That's how big God's grace is. And the reason that I watched that interview and I said, no way, is because I don't realize how much I've been forgiven. That my heart at its core, and some of you are going to shudder at this and go, no, Jeff, you can't say that, but it's true biblically. My heart is just as wicked as Jeffrey Dahmer's. I just never acted on anything that wicked, but it's there. And the extent to which I have been forgiven is the same extent to which Jeffrey Dahmer has been forgiven and the same extent to all of us that we've been forgiven. That's the massive massive grand canyon of God's grace that we stand and we tremble and we go, is this real? Could God really forgive somebody like me? Nevertheless, him, me. Can he do that? When's the last time you stood on the cliff precipice of the glory of God's grace and forgiveness and trembled with joy that you are forgiven? It's unbelievable. God's heart is bigger than we think it is. His mercy wider, his grace deeper, his love more far-reaching, his compassion more alarming his patience more withstanding, his forgiveness more unexpected, his love more uncomfortable than we could ever imagine. I love this old hymn by Frederick Faber, a noted 19th century English hymn writer and theologian. He said this, he said, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. 
For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. What do we do with Acts chapter 9 and 10? What do we take away from it? Let's go back to one of my favorite guys, John Stott. He says this. Luke has now recounted the conversions of Saul and Cornelius. The differences between these two men were considerable. In race, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. In culture, Saul was a scholar, Cornelius a soldier. In religion, Saul was a bigot, Cornelius a seeker. Yet both were converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And both were baptized and welcomed into the family, the Christian family, on equal terms. This fact is a signal testimony to the power and impartiality of the gospel of, of Christ, which is still, Romans 1.16, the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Scripture tells us that those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. May we be a people who first see how much we've been forgiven. May we see the heart of God in the grandeur of his impartiality. And may we be a people who mimic his heart and forgive much. Father, would you do that? Would you do that in us? Would you make us a people who stand on the precipice of the glory of your forgiveness and allow your grace to transform us. We thank you for this story of Cornelius. And we thank you for the work that you did in establishing the early church so that we may learn and be like the early church. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.